Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of POMAPS. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin by talking to Toby Matheson, Bristol University, about his magisterial new book, The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shiism, published by Oxford University Press. Then we have a conversation with Lisa Anderson and Rababa Mehdi about their innovative project, Ramina, looking at research ethics in the study of the Middle East. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we talk to Toby Matheson at the University of Bristol and the author of the, of the monumental new book, The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shiism. Uh, Toby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. So this is really an, an incredibly ambitious book. It spans the entire history of, of Islam, basically. Uh, why did you decide to write a book of this scope and scale? What brought you to this project? Well, I guess I'd been sort of interested in this uh, broad topic since I first started sort of, you know, engaging with the Middle East and, and sort of the wider Islamic world and, you know, studying Arabic and, and Persian and, you know, going on to do graduate uh, graduate school and so on. I, I, I'd written this dissertation on the on Shi communities in Saudi Arabia and worked quite a lot on the Gulf and sort of on the sectarianization of the Arab uprisings um, and so on and so forth. Saudi-Iranian relations, um, and and over all these years, um, you know, also observing sort of the fallout, you know, of the invasion of Iraq, um, uh, and then, you know, the wars in Syria and Yemen, um, and, uh, yeah, the rivalries in the Gulf, people kept asking me, um, you know, uh, everywhere, really, you know, in, in academia, but also in more sort of policy circles or in the public, uh, in public debates, you know, what was this really about? You know, how, was this a story that started 1,400 years ago? Or was it all sort of, you know, uh, the, the modern state colonialism? Um, you know, was the Iranian revolution to blame? You know, an argument that some make. Um, or, you know, was it all the Saudis' fault? You know, Wahhabism is behind everything. Um, or was it, you know, the American intervention in in, in Iraq um, and and sort of dismantling of the Iraqi state and then the you know establishing of the sectarian system, or was it sort of the Arab Spring and and the way you know everything unraveled? Um, and I always sort of uh, uh, found it quite difficult to sort of answer um, very briefly to to the, these questions because people really wanted to have a sort of you know either or answer. Um, one of the problems sort of with political scientists was often, you know, does history matter? Uh, it's that notion that, well, you know, the content of identities maybe doesn't really matter or of narratives. Um, and it's all sort of, you know, once the political system is set up in a certain way, you can only engage with it in in, in certain terms. And in, you know, Iraq and Lebanon, for example, it's the sectarian identity mm -hmm. that matters and that is institutionalized. And then that sort of, um, you know, leads to sectarian politics. And in a way, the book, which now turned out perhaps a bit longer than I had envisaged uh, at the start, or or anyone really had envisaged at the start, um, really tries to tackle this, these questions uh, and take them all seriously. So take all the different hypotheses seriously, but try to give a sort of holistic answer to, to this question. So in a sense, the question, when does sectarian identity become relevant? Um, and, um, you know, what's really the relationship between Sunnism and Shiism, sort of Islam's two main branches. And to write this, I mean, you go all the way back to the, the founding of Islam and the original uh, the original split. 
Um, and you really had to immerse yourself in a tremendous amount of secondary and primary literature. Uh, the, the footnotes and bibliography are like 300 pages long. Um, so how, how did you go about doing this, given your, you know, your background in political science and, you know, your, you know, kind of previous focus on the modern period? How was it to go back into this like really deep historical, historiographical research and work? It is true that I had to read, um, you know, loads of literatures with which I wasn't so familiar. Um, I'd done sort of Islamic studies as an undergraduate, actually, and 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 history, and and started seeing myself much more as a historian, really, uh, over part of the past years. But um, you know, still there was loads of stuff that I I just didn't know, and and that's also one reason why, I guess, the notes section became so substantial because um, you know I'm talking about a lot of very contentious episodes and stuff that um you know especially the different sort of branches of islam see pretty differently i mean many of the sort of core you know things so i always felt i really had to back up sort of the different uh positions um you know to sort of cite cite positions directly um and really um you know one of the things that you do a really nice what? job with that actually showing how the contested narratives are actually part of the political story uh, well, thank you very much. Um, I'm trying, um, and thanks for for getting through the whole book, Mark. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, one of the other things I I really try to do is is go beyond English, really, in the secondary literature, uh, and obviously at at certain points go back to the primary sources, especially in Arabic, um, but also really include um, you know secondary literatures, especially in in French. Uh, but also in German and and some other languages. But because in those languages, I mean, sort of the old Orientalist um, scholarship that um, actually started engaging with these questions in the 19th century and then also played a role in sort of imperial projects. And so this is sort of one of the sub-themes of the book is also, you know, the relationship between knowledge and power and and sort of recognition of, of you know, sectarian difference in Islam and then institutionalizing that in, in law and, and also in political systems. Um, and so on and so forth. But to do that, I really, you know, I had to, yeah, read quite a lot of I mean, vast amounts. Um, I was fortunate to have sort of the British Library pretty close uh, to where I was staying, where you can actually access everything in hard copy in the, the various languages. And um, uh, I guess the pandemic really forced me to sort of, you know, well, really get it sort of sorted and 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 uh, and finish the, the book um, in a sense. Now, that's actually an interesting segue. And one of the things which really struck me about the book is that it's genuinely a global history. And uh, what, and for example, India weighs much more heavily in the narrative than I, as a kind of Middle East person, might have expected. And I think this fits into, into trends within history, uh, the study of history, uh, to do these global histories and to see these trans-regional connections. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, the way that Think that over the course of history, you saw these developments in far-flung parts of, of the world kind of, kind of rebounding back into what we might consider to be the core. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the main topics of the book or aims is also, in a sense, decentering Islamic history, which is now a very broad sort of trend. Um, uh, but as a sort of originally Middle East expert, that was also difficult for me. Um, uh, I what really helped was a you know a fieldwork trip to India 
um, where I mainly, you know, spent time in Lucknow, um, which is one of sort of the old, um, you know, Muslim imperial capitals. And that was actually ruled by Shi dynasties for a while, extremely wealthy Shi dynasties that had all these ties to to scholarship in, in Iraq and, and funded loads of Shi causes. Um, but where also, you know, uh, Sunni revivalism took took root. Uh, and and sort of traveling around the country and interviewing people and and also giving a number of of talks and really you know realizing the depth of of scholarship on the Indian subcontinent um, and the ways in which it was actually more advanced than Middle East scholarship in in some in, in quite a lot in certain areas um, although Middle East scholarship is catching up but there were sort of a lot of questions that were really answered in a lot of details I mean it it helps also the the vast availability of sources of archives in India, especially for the colonial uh, period, uh, which lasts so long. And, um, you know, so you can really quite easily trace, for example, the institutionalization of sectarian identity in, in the legal system, which is one thing that I'm doing in, in one of the chapters. And, and that really had a profound impact on, um, you know, how the British Empire governed, uh, you know, Muslim difference in other parts of, of its empire and informal territories like in the Gulf. Um, or in in Aden, uh, places like that, and later in Iraq in the mandate system. So I think you know one of the reasons why India is so important is because really it was a you know and it is a major part of the Islamic world. And in the early modern period, the you know the early modern empires um, in India were were incredibly important. And because it had large Shi and Sunni communities living next to each other in various places, so in an interesting interaction not always problematic, often actually non-problematic. And so there I make this other point that, you know, confessional ambiguity and sort of, you know, coexistence, especially in a where Muslims are not the majority, which, you know, was the case in, in many places in, in India, um, could actually be quite, quite good. Um, but also sort of the notion that, you know, India was really the, the heart of the British Empire. It's where British ruling strategies were sort of developed um, and, uh, you know, then were applied elsewhere. Um, and, and also, as we know, you know, the Gulf region and other territories were sort of ruled from from British India. Um, so, uh, you know, that was really important also for me to sort of decenter that sort of, you know, London Middle East nexus to sort of, you know, make a much wider British imperial nexus. And um, I guess, you know, the, the history of the British Empire is so crucial to sort of the development of a global history as a discipline over the last few decades um, with people like Chris Bailey and and, and others. Um, and so uh, also in interaction with some of these people, I realized sort of how little I knew about uh, India and how much more I should be knowing. And mm -hmm. so the book is in a sense also, you know, a response to that or, or you know, a trying to to engage really um yeah with these different territories and with the large bodies of of literature that that do exist I pick up on the, the point that you just made like one of the themes that really emerges from from the book is as you as you range over history and the different empires and all of that is the kind of fluidity uh that you see between uh, what is now sunnism and shiism but you see considerable fluidity uh, theologically and also in practice um over the over the centuries and as, as I as I understand it, the argument is that they tend to harden when they intersect with state projects or imperial projects. In other words, you really center the power uh, and and uh, you know the power uh, dimension of of what produces these kinds of more rigid or hardened uh, distinctions. Um, is, that, is that right? 
Yes. And I mean, I guess that's where you can discern the political scientists somewhere yeah. um, that in a sense and why it might be interesting for, for political scientists to have a look at, because, um, you know, I really especially part two looks at the early modern empires and how they interacted with religion. Um, and then part three really looks at sort of the modern state, like, you know, when when, you know, European colonial powers directly start to rule countries or like when the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century starts to. Um, you know, modernize defensively, but also re -com completely reconfigurates its relationship with uh, Muslim religious diversity um, in in incredibly you know influential uh, ways. And um, so, um, and and then part four looks sort of at uh, interstate rivalry after the Iranian Revolution and how that reshaped uh, relations. So, so yes, I mean, the question of the state is is at the center um, of this all. Having said that, you know, some of the things I'm also looking at are sort of these, um, you know, Muslim revivalist movements uh, that emerge in, especially in the 18th century, really. And not all of them are so directly, um, you know, related to this, I mean, only a reaction to to the, to the sort of modern state. Um, they are in, in, in certain ways, but um, uh, what we see is a sort of simultaneity of, of, of sect-centric revivalist movements, both within Sunnism and within Shiism, that start to sort of be more rigid in, in how they interpret Islam and more sort of against the relative other uh, group. So um, the, the Wahhabi movement on the Arabian Peninsula, but also sort of, you know, similar movements in India are examples of this. And uh, Usuli, um, 12 Shiism, uh, is, is another is an example on the Shi scene. And it's interesting seeing how, you know, particular countries uh, or particular regions, you know, evolve over time. You know, Egypt starts with, uh, you know, having Shiism and then evolves into a Sunni power. And then you talk about the emergence of Iran as a as a Shia, uh, uh, Shia centric place. But it, in your telling, it's not naturalized. You can really see the evolution of this through the competition for power among different empires, different communities, different families, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a main uh, topic or trope that I'm writing against is this notion that Sunnis and Shis existed, you know, for 1,400 years in an unchanging way, are almost like ethnicities or or something like that. I mean, obviously, you know, if you have, uh, you know, mass conversions and, and, and uh, you know, movements of whole countries from one to the other over time, um, that is really not the case. Um, so um, in some ways, I'm, 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 you know, dispelling certain stereotypes that that people have, you know, and and perhaps I had myself, you know, when I wasn't so aware of of all the history. So, you mm -hmm. know, the notion that Iran was actually Sunni as long as it's Shi, um, and you know, yeah, Egypt, it's sort of the low hanging fruit that Egypt was really, you know, the the heart of of the first, you know, big sort of Mediterranean Shi empire, really, and. Um, um, you know, the, the city of Cairo was built by the by the Fatimids, um, but also sort of in a way, look at how these legacies then, you know, changed over later periods. So how later rulers um, obviously de-emphasized the Shi nature of the Fatimids, um, uh, but, you know, kept on the buildings, um, for example. And, and, and you can, of course, still see, um, you know, influences in, in popular practices and in architecture and so on and so forth um, in Egypt. So in a sense, dispelling the notion that, you know, um, Iranians are Shia and Arabs are sort of Sunni. I mean, you exactly. know, Arabness is, I mean, it's much more diverse. And, you know, also in Iran, the, you know, Sunni communities um, exist until this day, which in itself is 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 quite interesting. So 
This is all extremely interesting, but you are speaking here to an audience uh, which is predominantly political scientists. So convince us that this history matters. Why do, why do you think political scientists need to know about this deeper history in order to understand the dynamics of sectarianism today? So I think what really struck me was this sort of, you know, how in the early modern period, you know, certain new Muslim imperial projects started to be associated directly with sectarian identity um and and it's not extremely exclusive you know there's always still some fluidity but it really shifts in about 1500 and what's interesting is this really the same time that things also really shift in europe so you have this sort of in the broader process of confessionalization of these you know religiously motivated wars conversions um you know conquests um and uh, you know in the case of the the ottomans which is one of my main case studies you know they're really um you know fighting uh, against the habsburgs on the one side and the safavids on the other and in this process they are becoming you know more muslim in their self self proclamation and identity um but it is a process that links you know the middle east and europe um and you know the, the balkans and the eastern mediterranean um with sort of the you know central asia uh, um and 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 these regions um the other main case study are obviously the safavids which um you know take power and initially are also sort of fairly ambiguous but then you know con top down convert uh, iran to shiism and you know execute people who don't want to convert and and you know it's a really sort of a it is in a sense already a different state project from from what happened before and religious identity becomes very important um to it on the indian subcontinent things are a bit more complicated but you have local rulers that also sort of you know um try to convert populations inspired actually by the safavids both in the deccan and in uh also in in northern um india and so here again, sort of early modern state formation and and confessional identity, and also you know more closely bound sort of you know connections between specific territories and a sort of national religion in a sense um, are really important, and that's sort of what part two of the book um, looks at. And then I mean I go into much more detail I think than than what has previously been done um, on the you know the ways in which the modern state uh, across various regions sort of um institutionalizes sectarian identity and you know one of the arguments that that i'm making particularly is the uh, is the legal system and i was myself struck that this was actually a process that started much earlier than than i had thought so actually in the late 18th century in india um uh, already and so you know when we as middle east experts you know we we know the story of you know in the you know the the, the late ottoman state you know you know, looks at things and then especially the mandate period it's, is where sort of, you know, the French mandate in Syria and Lebanon and the, you know, the bridge mandate in Iraq, that's sort of when sectarian categories become, you know, enshrined in the legal system. And that's fairly well known. I mean, I have a chapter on the mandates too, but for Middle East experts, I guess there's, you know, mm -hmm. fairly familiar with this. But what I was struck is that, you know, this was already a century old, this sort of policy of um, of doing this. Um, and, and you know, the British had already done this in, in India. So um, and, and were then applying similar sort of methods. Um, you know, some of the officers that were working in Iraq in the 20s had been to India before. And uh, so there is a direct, in a sense, uh, connection of imperial uh, learning, I I argue. So I think there's plenty for political scientists yeah, to yeah, be interested um, uh, in. And, and I mean, I think also maybe, you know, to use in teaching. I mean, it's one of the ideas is also that it's it can be used in teaching. 
So if you have a course uh, where, you know, you teach, I don't know, Saudi-Iranian relations or, you know, the Iranian revolution or, you know, more recent things, um, there is now a sort of fairly authoritative uh, work where you can say, well, you know, you read a chapter on what happened in the mandate period, for example, that tries to bring, you know, these things sort of together uh, as a comparative case. So in a sense to, you know, to counter the argument, you know, um, yeah, that that's, things just start uh, in a certain period. But also, you know, being being honest that um, in, in some periods, you know, for example, pan-Islam emerges as a, as a very strong movement that captures the minds and hearts of, of many Muslims at a similar time that you have a more strong um, sort of sectarian affiliation, um, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th century. So in a sense, you know, it's not a book that tries to argue just one case, you know, right. that, that um, you know, the, the, the sectarian tension was sort of always the dominant factor. It looks tries to sort of be quite honest in, in looking at when it was relevant and, and when it was less relevant. And I think that's, you know, that's something that that uh, Middle East politicists will be interested in, I hope. In the in the, the latter parts of the book, you dive into and, and dig deeply into the more contemporary period um, where you really kind of we see these kinds of uh, sectarian politics um, playing out in all the ways that people are familiar with. And uh, in, in your opening comments, you you ticked off kind of the big three kind of inflection points that people often point to the Iranian revolution, uh, the U.S. invasion of Iraq and then uh, the Arab uprisings in 2011. And I'm curious if you could just say a little bit about each of these and how you think they changed uh, the politics and practices of sectarianism in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, of course, these inflection points were important, but I tried to sort of discuss them in a, in a perhaps a bit of a different way than, than it's usually done. So, you know, on the Iranian revolution, for example, um, there's now a sense that, um, you know, when you look at, at how it played out at the time in 79, 80, 81, um, it was seen very differently from the way it was, you know, seen today. And there's now quite a lot of scholarship. And um, we've had a small project looking at how, you know, Sunni Islamists, especially the Muslim brothers, uh, embraced the revolution. And, um, you know, many, there were delegations who traveled to Tehran. Um, you know, it's quite well known, like, you know, the, the PLO and sort of leftists now, you know, endorsed it and, and you know, part of the sort of global anti-colonial, anti-American sort of intellectual intelligentsia. But um, on the other hand, there were, you know, many Islamists, um, you know, including famous people like Maududi, um, you know, all the way to Rashid Ranoushi. And I mean, you know, very important figures in the Sunni Islamist sort of spectrum mm -hmm. thought this could be the start of, you know, of an Islamic um, revolution and a changing of the, you know, international system really, uh, you know, along Islamic lines. So didn't really see it as a, as a particularly Shi um, revolution until, you know, later in the 1980s. Um, and so, you know, one chapter traces this process, how sort of the Iran-Iraq war and, um, you know, and changes then also within Iran at, you know, at some point 12 Shiism becomes sort of state religion, uh, something that, that, you know, was not really clear at the start um, and how um, Iran becomes seen more narrowly sort of as a Shi uh, Islamist state, although it until today tries to, you know, keep that sort of pan-Islamic rhetoric um, alive. Um, so I think where it really had a huge impact was on on the Gulf states and also in Egypt um, and in sort of these places where, um, I mean, 
but Egypt is also, of course, a case in point. In Egypt, the the people who were inspired by the revolution were Sunni, you know, revolutionaries who assassinated Sadat, and um, so it's not particularly Shi. Mm -hmm. A concept it was the the notion of you know uh, a revolutionary action, violent action to to overthrow the system. But many of these uh, Sunni ruled um, uh, uh, Arab states, especially in the Gulf, especially in Kuwait, in Bahrain, and in Saudi Arabia, were really afraid of what was going on. And you did have, of course, protests and you know some bombings and assassinations in these places, and the formation of new sort of Shi'i Islamist uh, movements that were tied to Iran and some you know, people went in exile in Iran. Uh, and so, you know, it's throughout the 1980s that really, you know, the, the Iranian... So in a sense, I'm making the argument that it's more sort of the 1980s and the sort of regional and IR fallout of the Iranian revolution rather than the revolution per se, sort of domestically, that I guess sectarianized um, the regional system more profoundly. And um, uh, it coincides, obviously, with the Afghan jihad and, and you know the the sponsoring of of, of Sunni jihadism, which is very anti-Shi in in many cases. Um, you know, in in in, in across uh, you know wider sections of the of Central Asia and the wider Muslim world. No, I thought that was a really interesting and important point. I think because that is that part of the history really is, I think, broadly forgotten. Um, and uh, so it's good that you brought that out. Um, and then you know the invasion of Iraq. And the unleashed yeah, I mean, the invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Iraq. Yeah, and and of course, you know, now twenty years after, uh, you know, we've had a lot of sort of you know discussions about these these topics. But what I think is still somewhat unanswered is is you know how the Americans, um, you know, start to adopt this sort of sectarian vision uh, and and adopt sort of you know uh, uh, ethno-sectarian identity politics as a sort of good way of reorganizing you know, Iraqi society. Because if you uh, look back after, uh, you know, to 1991, I mean, one of the reasons why the Americans actually didn't uh, uh, move all the way to Baghdad and, 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 and you know, overthrew um, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein was at the time the notion that, um, you know, if you supported more strongly the uprising in, in, the, in southern Iraq that was going on, this this would enhance, uh, you know, Iran's position. But, um, you know, throughout the 1990s, um, in in conversations and and uh, interactions also with Iraqi exiles, this this shifts, um, and I think we actually don't really uh, exactly know uh, in the American case, um, you know how that uh, how that really happened. Um, uh, um, you have in 1998, you have sort of uh, you know important developments. You, you know the United States starts sponsoring even. Um, uh, you know, Shi Islamist movements um, uh, gives them financial aid to 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 overthrow um, the the Ba'ath uh, regime, but it's a really a, it's an extreme shift um, uh, that happens in the 1980s, um, which I guess um, have to do with the end of the Cold War and um, um, and perhaps you know just um, yeah. yeah, I mean individuals uh, in a sense, but it's still quite hard to explain. Um, uh, you know. But once it ha does happen, of course, the intervention is 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 extremely influential in in not just sectarianizing Iraq, but throughout the violence to 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 inflame. I don't, know if that's, I don't know if it's that hard to explain. They wanted to invade Iraq, and so they came up with reasons to believe, or at least to claim, that it would go smoothly. So the <laughs> Iraqi Shia wouldn't align with Iran because we don't want them to, because that would be inconvenient. 
I guess so. I guess so. But so therefore, it's quite hard to sort of make out from the archives and, and interviews and, and available books, you know, what really, I mean, I still can't really entirely explain why, you know, why people did what they what they did, um, uh, in a sense. Let, let's jump but really course, quickly. Let, let's jump really quickly uh, in, the, in these last few minutes, because, uh, you know, your previous book, uh, really did focus on uh, kind of the Arab uprisings and the kind of sectarianism in the Gulf after that in, in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, kind of in, in, in that and the broader region. And so can you tell you a little bit then about having gone through this massive historical um, and conceptual, you know, kind of uh, kind of uh, uh, pre, or you've done all this work, and then you get back to where you began, which is 2011 and the aftermath. And do you see things any, do you think differently now? Um, or do you kind of reframe some of your the ways you've thought about sectarianism in this period based on this broader historical perspective? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, sort of in sectarian Gulf and, and, and so on, I, I was really looking at political processes um, a lot and sort of top-down processes. And I guess things are a bit more complicated than that. Um, I think now if we if we connect to the Iraq war, um, I think sort of Gulf rulers were incredibly scared about what happened in 2003 and then sort of the empowerment of Iraqi Shia. And it's hard to overestimate that. You also had certain, some, you know, former Baathists mo moving to the Gulf states and, and start working, um, you know, for the governments or, you know, at least, you know, also in the media sector and so on. Um, so the notion of sort of the Xi threat, um, you know, uh, uh, is is there in large parts of the Arab public sphere, um, you know, in, in Bahrain, in Kuwait, in Saudi, um, in Jordan um, uh, and, and elsewhere. And it sort of forms a, a, a threat. It's at this point, you know, that, um, for example, the Bahraini uh, government decides to sort of naturalize more Sunnis. Uh, in response to this, and and you have really a much stronger sort of security focus on on these Shia communities, and when you get to the Arab uprisings, um, you know, as there were so many things happening at the same time in different countries, and and um, it was a spark that that also pushed people into the streets, specifically in in eastern Saudi Arabia and in and in Bahrain. I mean, you know, from what we know today very unsuccessfully i mean the repression was extremely harsh and in a sense um fairly successful um if we look at the trajectory of saudi arabia over the past um decade perhaps less so in in bahrain where you know people are still there's still you know many many prisoners from that uh, from that time um uh, and the situation is is still not um resolved but i mean i think one of the ways in which this connects to the sort of more historical um, trajectories is that, you know, you you do need the sort of political setup, um, in a sense, to to have such a strong, you know, uh, mm -hmm. tension. But uh, in uh, you know where this is located, sort of you know between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and and sort of the longer trajectories of you know who are the inhabitants of this place, you know, who own the national narratives and, and sort of, you know, what's the sort of state religion in a sense, um, you know, where, you know, where do they fit into nationalist narratives and, and such things are, are, are things that have been negotiated for much longer and, um, and where I guess Gulf Shi communities are still somewhat uh, marginalized, although it is starting to change um, in Saudi Arabia, uh, at least on a, you know, also on a discursive level. So over the past few years, you do have, 
um, you know, a stronger sort of acknowledgement that she, you know, Saudi Shia are part of sort of the Saudi nation. And, uh, you know, in, a, in previous decades, this was something that only sort of, um, you know, she, the Shia opposition would say sort of, you know, to be sort of non-offensive, but but it wasn't really accepted the way the way it is now. But even beyond the Gulf, you can you remember things like uh, the in Egypt, the Great Panic over Shia conversion and proselytization and that sort of thing. And I, I did see a lot of echoes in the historical uh, work that might help to make sense of why that seemingly you know absurd claim might get the kind of traction that it did. Yeah, I mean, I guess Egypt, uh, with its Shia history, um, uh, is particularly sensitive to these uh, to these topics. And I mean, I think you know one of the things that I mean it's somewhat obvious, but I make in the in the book is is the notion that you know places like Iraq and Syria are really where you know the core sort of stories and the Arabian Peninsula where really you know early Islamic history played out. Um, you know, it's it's really you know, embracing different uh, places and, and names of, of people of the early period, um, which many movements and, and even, you know, militias and, and so on kept on doing, especially throughout the 2010s, um, is extremely powerful. And these are extremely powerful narratives. And why are they so powerful? It's, it's yeah, it's because it, they have this long history and they're very, um, you know, inflammatory. And um, maybe we're now coming to a, an era where this will be less so that would be that would be good um but you know they are they are powerful for a reason and and the reason is you know as i outline in the book because um you know this is this is where the original splits sort of happened and why you know for example this year uh, there was the idea the saudis produced a, a ramadan series from wawia uh, and immediately the, there was loads of outrage and now in the in the broader um you know, rapprochement with Iran and with Iraqi Shia, also with Iraqi Shia clerics, they actually didn't broadcast this in the end. So it's also interesting, but it, it was one of the examples where I, you know, saw again that, well, actually, it is really states play a big role in this. You know, they can finance and push uh, sectarianization, but when it gets, you know, when they don't need it anymore, or don't want it, they can also put a lid on it, um, you know, at least to a certain uh, degree. Well, it's really interesting. We've been speaking to Toby Matheson about his new Oxford University Press book, The Caliph and the Imam. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined by Lisa Anderson of Columbia University and Rababa Mehdi of the American University of Cairo. And they're among the leaders of this project called Ramina, Research Ethics in the Middle East, North Africa, which has been uh, going for a couple of years now. And uh, we wanted to have a conversation about what it's about, what we've learned, and uh, where it goes from here. I thought we could start with uh, Lisa Anderson. Um, tell us about the origins of the project and how it's developed uh, over the last couple of years. Well, first, thanks, Mark, for having this uh, opportunity to talk about the program. Um, it has been now um, since 2020 that we originally started. We got funding in the first instance from Columbia and then from the Carnegie um, Corporation, and I'll get back to that in a minute, to really explore questions that I think in the interstices, in the hallways, whenever scholars of the Middle East and North Africa get together, they worry over um, what is the right way to do the research that we want to be doing. So honestly, 
it started out as a kind of inchoate exploratory, let's bring ourselves together out of the hallways into the room to talk about these kinds of questions. Um, and to their great credit, the Carnegie Corporation fellow, Wiesner in particular, recommended that we not only sort of canvas each other and document problems that we thought we had, but also to begin to think about remedies. What could be done better? What could, and as she put it, what could funders do better? What could universities do better? What could faculty advisors do better? Um, so it focused the mind in a very productive way very early to sort of begin to describe what we found um, troubling and then kind of categorize it. It wasn't just in Coate. These were patterns where junior early career researchers in working in the region were having disproportionate difficulty publishing their work. Mm -hmm. So how do we figure out what kind of remedies there might be to that? How do we uh, amplify that to journal editors and so forth and so on? Um, many doctoral students were finding that they weren't getting very effective uh, advising about some of the issues that they confronted when they um, went out and began to conduct their research. People were concerned about some of the methods that had become particularly popular in some of our disciplines and so forth. So um, we began to sort of organize. Now, of course, interestingly, and perhaps, again, uh, there was a silver cloud in the lining of uh, lining the uh, silver lining in the COVID cloud, because of course the original intent was these would be in-person workshops and obviously because of COVID they weren't for the first couple of years. So we moved online and we began to have periodic seminars where we just brought people together and began to talk about these issues and so forth. So within a year or two of getting going, um, all at that point online, we did develop a set of working groups about publication, patterns of publication, issues of language, issues of, you know, access to peer review pools, so forth and so on. So that would be one. Or are there kinds of ways to help uh, doctoral advisors who don't know very much about the region give productive and useful advice, nonetheless, about the kinds of issues that people may be confronting and so forth. So that actually worked out um, quite well. And again, we can um, elaborate on that a little bit. But um, by now, we have had essentially um, three in-person workshops plus a, a side meeting at the American Political Science Association in Mo Montreal. But we also met in Amman and Tunis and Cairo um, to discuss elements that we've been working on all of which to the end eventually of having written documents that are our recommendations that we will then disseminate through university departments, through professional associations, to funders and so forth. Um, because of the COVID interruption, things have not gone obviously as quickly as the original proposal might have suggested. Um, but to our great satisfaction, uh, Carnegie has given us another grant, a second grant in the program, so that we will be able to, among other things, 
vet some of our proposals um, with people who work outside the region. Mm -hmm. So to what extent is this Middle East unique um, and to what extent are these sort of more universal problems of conducting social science research in the 21st century? So we expect to have a, a set of conversations that will, again, sharpen some of the recommendations that we have and, and you know, broaden our audience to some degree. Um, at this point, I just, I have perhaps one other observation before um, I let Rabab amplify some of this, but it's been interesting because you realize that there are different levels of what, we started out with a sort of seat of the pants definition of ethics. Some things were clearly wrong and we could tell that. But now we've become a little bit more systematic and a little more sophisticated about what we meant. Um, and I think it's fair to say that there are these sort of layers of what we think are the responsibilities of the researchers. So they include to a sort of broader intellectual community, what are the, what's the political context in which you're asking this question? Why are you asking this question? Um, and then we're, you know, you have responsibilities to the the research enterprise. Um, other people do research. It's not just you and your team. It's so what is your responsibility to those other people, including other people in the future? Um, this is a, an enterprise which is a collective enterprise in important ways, and we need to be cognizant of that. Obviously, we need to be thoughtful about our responsibilities to institutions. We're routinely employed at or students at universities. We are funded by institutional funders and so forth. What responsibilities do we have to them? Um, obviously, and probably the most obvious place where this starts, we have responsibilities to the people about whom we are doing research. So, you know, that's the sort of fundamental do no harm quality to what we where we started. But actually, um, that's true and we don't really necessarily know how to do that as effectively as we should but there are other of these kinds of um, constituencies and communities that we need to be thinking about and then finally you know researchers have obligations to themselves they don't need to put themselves in harm's way um, simply to be you know a part of this enterprise so to to really think through all of these kind of characters of responsibility, I think has been probably the most fruitful and interesting thing that we've been able to accomplish. Um, and so we now have a couple of edited volumes that are likely to be coming out of the project, as well as, you know, as I say, recommendations to various of our constituents and supporters. So it's been enormously interesting. And I think um, in some ways more fruitful than we even expected it to be. Thanks for that, that really great overview. Uh, Rabab, why don't we turn to you and your experience with the project and how you've seen it develop uh, over the years. Okay, so let me start with um, what brought me on. So um, I was part of those, you know, corridor conversations that Lisa was talking about, uh, whereby mainly expressing frustration on so many different levels. I mean, you're also um, are aware of this, uh, Mark, because I, you know, we talked about this um, in different uh, ways, but I am... Uh, 
of and from a generation that is lucky enough to have seen, lucky and unlucky, to have seen the field, um, you know, being able to produce very um, influential, um, and when I say influential, politically influ influential and intellectually inf influential uh, work and knowledge, right? And, and this came with a particular kind of uh, training, understanding of what research should be about, why do we do research so broadly speaking, um, ethos of research and research ethics, right? Um, and, and I'm and over the uh, past few decades, I've seen this also change into a different kind of professionalization of the research establishment and what comes with this in terms of uh, what is published, what do we value, how do we train our students, so on and so forth. Um, and in doing this, I'm lucky to have like one feet in uh, one foot in the US and, and another in the region, um, which, which makes me see the, the different uh, challenges. So long story short, uh, Lisa was kind enough uh, to bring me on early on um, to, to this project, which is, has been cathartic in a way. Now, I think that in different, there's been different initiatives, right? So we're not, like we're not the only one thinking about these issues, but so far or those, those concerns have been scattered and the initiatives to do the to do this or to address these concerns have been either um very technical and focused so how do we do uh safe field work for example uh what how do we uh investigate the the changing funding dynamics um or more conceptual and intellectual basically you know what is what is the Middle East? How do we define MENA? What does this, as a research object, what does this uh, mean in the gaze that we have for uh, as researchers, right? What Remina does is bring all this together, right? So bringing the conceptual questions with the technical. So we ask we have groups working and asking questions, broad questions about what are the research questions that we ask and the ones that we do not ask and how do we decide this, right? Not from a technical perspective, but from our broader re responsibility to the research enterprise and to knowledge production, as well as to people uh, in the region from the, um, from the region and, and so on and so forth. And we have technical considerations, right? What are publishers interested in? What, why, why should they shift their gaze or what they can do better? Uh, does IRB, you know, suffice in terms of qualifying for good and ethical uh, field work? So you have both the, the the conceptual broad questions, but you have also the technicalities of how to do this uh, bridged together uh, in Remina as a project. We also have this whole idea that we would like to overcome, which is thinking of uh, the boundaries as in or from the region and outside the region, which is something that I personally um, have not found very useful 
uh, when thinking about how we do uh, research. The idea is as a research community, there should be um, parameters that we agree on, whether you're working on the region but and reside in the US or work on the region and uh, reside in the, in the Middle East, right? So bringing all, all these things together, we classified them into uh, a few issues. One is what questions do we ask? Why do we ask them? And what do we get to miss? Uh, with a specific, very technical focus uh, more recently. Um, a, another set of questions having to do with funding, right? What what do we fund? Not we, the, the three of us, but basically what is being funded? Why is it being funded? What is the politics of that? And how can this, how can we unmask those dynamics and, and improve them? Uh, a third set of questions having to do with the parameters of publication. Uh, what do we publish? What sources do we use? Why do we use them? What are publishers interested in and why? Uh, and, and to that effect, I would I would just, um, there's a caveat here because usually we tend to think of what are publishers interested in and then we try to train our students and the junior scholars to respond um, to those parameters. Uh, what we're trying to do is actually to question these parameters and to include in the conversation, not the publishers coming there and, and sitting, telling those junior scholars, you know, you should be working on this, but also those uh, different scholars telling those publishers, those are the things that you should be taking into consideration. Um, we have a group working on, you know, uh, things that have to do with IRB, fieldwork ethics, uh, what do we do fieldwork remote versus in the region versus all the concerns that, you know, you and others uh, have raised about doing um, field research. And, uh, and while doing that, we also discuss issues that have to do with the training, right? So how are pro programs put together and training uh, um, scholars and researchers in the region, and not I might have missed something, Lisa, uh, but broadly speaking, um, broadly speaking, uh, that's it. And what we hope, uh, what we've been working uh, towards in the in this current new phase is bringing all the different initiatives together so that we do not remain scattered. What POMAPS does um, becomes uh, intertwined with what the APSN, the Arab Political Science Association does, what MESA is trying to do, what ACSS, the, the Arab Council for Social Science Research uh, is doing, right? And having all uh, those different parties in conversation, but also not doing the same work. So eliminating redundancy, and capitalizing on what has been achieved so far. It, it's very comprehensive. And I think that that last point is a really important one, because I think we all know that there's quite a bit of overlap and duplication. And certainly funders often are all chasing the same thing and often the same people. And uh, and so I think it's important to, especially in this funding environment, to start deconflicting some of these projects. 
Rabab, in our conversations in the past and uh, also at the uh, Maps annual conference uh, this past year, one of the issues that Ramina takes on that uh, that you've been particularly focused on has been uh, the 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 kind of the exploitative or hierarchical relationships that you see between scholars from the region, scholars based in the global north. And I'm curious, like what the conversations within Romina have looked like as you've tried to figure out ways to address and uh, deal with with that kind of ongoing uh, set of set of problems. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that concern, uh, Mark, has been tackled on on different fronts because it manifests in in different ways, right? So one of the ways it manifests in is deciding a research agenda, right? What is the research enterprise interested in and how how we go about this? Why is it interested in? And so far you would see that the direction has been always decided and I again, I would, I would like to disaggregate like the global north and global south, or the region in in the U.S. in particular. I think broadly speaking is a right way to look at it. But within that, there is the disaggregation of you know someone in um, a liberal arts college in the U.S. is not as privileged in terms of deciding. Um, the research program of the region as someone in in, in an Ivy League, right? So. Uh, same thing uh, in the region. Um, I get more access uh, to voice those concerns that someone maybe in in a um, in a local university um, somewhere in in Egypt. Um, so with those kinds of uh, power disparities in mind, we still see a, a broad direction that is decided somehow in the global north because of the funding dynamics, because of the Ivy League uh, uh, positionality. And then scholars within um, the global north, but in less privileged uh, positions, and definitely the global south, are expected to follow suit. So, you know, what are those issues? And then we run after that. What are the uh, research methodologies that are in? And then we try to emulate that. And I've seen that happen with many of my colleagues, right? And the question, um, so the the question becomes, or the the way we've been doing it in Remina, is that we question this research agenda by bringing the different um, people and institution players, I would say, around the table. This includes not only the scholars, but also, as I said, like the publishers or or the funders. So why are we over? Um, and again, it, this is one of the, pro- the 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 research projects that I've been working about. What are the the questions that we ask in political science of the Middle East? And you see that the the way the the journals uh, what they've been focused on, and in terms of the novelty of research methods, as opposed to the the quality of the uh, the the question being asked or the importance of the question uh, being asked. And who is it important for? Are we speaking to US policymakers? Are we, do we wanna make an intellectual contribution? Do we wanna make a dent in uh, the existing um, policies in the region? Like, what do we want? I think is a question that we, we need to hone in 
and what we would like for from the different multiple uh, the uh, different uh, workshops that we hold in Remina is to hone in on that question so that it's something that everyone whether they're sitting on a on a on a board or a publication of a uh, journal or doing the research in the region to ask themselves primarily why am i working on this and the idea that this is like you know a nifty research question should not be the only consideration it's really well, can i give a can well, i, I give a, a, so i was going to come yeah. right to you actually because yeah. You actually wrote what I think is still the best article that uh, about this. I'm actually teaching it in my seminar tonight. The one on uh, you know shining, you're searching where the light is shining on democracy. 2006, 2006. Yeah. Fantastic article, but it really okay. you know, clearly you've been thinking about these issues of why do we ask the questions we ask for a long time. Well, one of the satisfactions to me of Ramina is that. From the very beginning, it was intended and to some modest degree has succeeded in convening across generations, across research sites, across university homes and so forth in a way that I think is quite unusual. So I'll give you an example. And, you know, to credit where it's due, Stacey Filbrick-Yadov's recent book highlights this. But um, we had a when we had our one of our in-person workshops, we invited a couple of collaborators from Yemen. And the and these are people with whom Stacy had worked. Um, and it was really wonderful to hear their discussion of research, social science research as a justice project. In other words, they're doing it to ensure that certain stories don't get lost. Um, and in some respects, I think um, Ali Hamida's work on Libya is similarly. This is not about impressing, you know, the current methodologists of the, you know, disciplinary associations. It's not about, um, you know, tenure. It's not about the, you know, the kinds of ordinary incentive structures that it's really saying the reason why we think this kind of research is important is because there is injustice being done and we need to address that. It's a very different way of using very similar techniques mm -hmm. to the more conventional social science -y kind of stuff that happens in the United States and in the university world. But I think that's part of what has been so valuable is that we are really hearing people saying, I have an agenda that's driven by something different. Um, it's not just not driven by the enthusiasm for democracy or the enthusiasm for, you know, randomized control experiments or whatever the enthusiasm of the moment is. I actually have a completely other reason why I think we ought to be doing this. And that I think is what we, a big part of what we hope to accomplish is to just surface the extent to which the circumstances, the audiences, the purposes of research um, can be that varied. And we each and all need to be reflecting on why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and that those are kinds of possibilities that I think for your average 
you know, doctoral student don't even cross their minds. But this is part of why people do this kind of research. So I think that's been very much about, you know, these sorts of questions um, of, you know, sort of research inequities. We yeah. can, you know, add, you know, amplify voices. The other thing that I think just quickly on a much more technical basis, um, as I've reported to Ramina colleagues, this is from outside of Ramina, but it's a very interesting parallel effort in uh, medical research because a lot of medical research in, for example, Africa is being driven by the need for clinical trials in various places for drugs that are you know, developed in the North and so forth and so on. The British medical journal Lancet now will no longer publish articles using data from Africa with no African authors. Hmm. So they're basically saying, you know, this, this is a sort of technical issue. It's not going to solve all of our problems, but rather than simply say there's nothing to be done about it, we're going to say who were the people who actually conducted these trials? They should be authors. So it's a, you know, there are certain, there's both very narrow technical ways we can begin to think about this and this much broader sort of what is the intellectual enterprise that we're involved in and why are we doing what we're doing? Mark, I want to jump in just two quick comments on what Lisa said. Um, again, and this is particularly for uh, like the, the more junior uh, colleagues. When people think about research and the ways that, uh, I've, I've seen happened recently, which is, you know, uh, what is a research question for which we have the data or can use randomized experiments or that this is like a nifty um, question. I mean, those can get you published, but it's, it's never the kind of research that you and I would refer to, uh, like the article that you just mentioned that Lisa wrote um, more than, I don't know, like 20 years ago. <laughs> Um, this is the let's not go there. Of, yeah, <laughs> right. So, so the idea that you know what's what's actually intellectually interesting uh, and what makes a difference are you know mutually exclusive. I don't I don't think that this uh, stands. Um, there are and the other thing that even if that doesn't concern like I've I've. There might be like philosophical theoretical questions that do not have a direct bearing on people on in the region or their lives immediately. But in general, it's intellectually um, not just interesting, but of substance that it stands the test of time and it contributes to our understanding. And I've seen how scholars can be of with a with the Arab uprisings. Like everyone was rushing towards academics of the region to see what they can actually provide and what, you know, whether they're uh, sociologists or uh, political scientists about, you know, what should we do? When you when you're not prepared because you've been focusing on, you know, using a particular research method as opposed to uh, thinking deeply about what are the questions that are of real relevance. Uh, you don't have anything uh, to contribute. In terms, the the final thing about the 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 Lancet example that uh, uh, Lisa used, I think uh, this is a great way to think about things. But the caveat and what 
I always caution about is the tokenism, because I've seen that happen a lot of times, you know, let's have an Arab name, let's have a woman, let's, you know, but then, um, and, and have them as co-researchers uh, and everything, but the research question, the gaze has been already decided, and they're just coming as an addition like a cosmetic addition so that we can see, see, Maad, my best friend is of a different color, so to speak. This is all really interesting. And um, these are, the, and I really like the way you frame this in terms of, you know, kind of research agendas that are interesting for whom and and why. I think we still need to support our junior colleagues and get them, help them to get published uh, for their careers. But I think I, I agree that these are not mutually exclusive um, enterprises. Um, I just wanted to raise one, but there's so many things we could talk about, but I think there's one thing that I think we need to kind of at least touch on uh, before we wrap up. And that is that the, there really is this sense across the field, again, these corridor conversations that also manifest, obviously, in your Romina discussions about this, what feels like a genuine crisis of access to the field and safety for doing research for both Western scholars, but also scholars in the region who face unbelievable risks and, and pressures. And all of us, I think, are in different ways experiencing these challenges of being able to do the kind of research that we used to be able to do and that we I think we all agree is necessary to do in order to generate useful knowledge from the field. And I'd be curious to hear from each of you about how the Romina groups have been discussing these issues and if you have any thoughts for how we as a research community might like taking might start taking some steps in that in that direction. Well, we have, obviously, and one of the reasons why we want to do some of this comparative work is the the sneaking suspicion that it is, in fact, much harder to do research in the Middle East and North Africa than pretty much anywhere else. Um, and that hasn't been true of a part of the world in a long time. Um, you know, there was a time when you had to do Kremlin, Kremlinology because you couldn't do research in the Soviet Union. And presumably there have been times when it's difficult to do research in China. Um, and both of those research arenas may get more difficult for our conventional social science research. Um, but the, the sort of sense and, and, you know, in Latin America during the military regimes of the 70s, it was, you know, so we're not, this is not unique in that sense. But it does have a feeling that right now it is unusually difficult. And therefore, first acknowledging that in some more, you know, to so to do the comparative work and then have people who work in Sub-Saharan Africa or work in South Asia or so forth and so on, yeah, actually help us articulate that this is, that there are certain kinds of things that we have more difficulty doing than were we working in other parts of the world. But also, I think the most important, you know, uh, tentative or interim conclusion that I'm beginning to come to is this is why these kind of social science networks are so important, because we really do need to be supporting the people who are actually doing research in the region, um, of whom there are a great many. I mean, you know, again, one of the nice things about the in-person workshops is that we meet people who are doing work um, that you can sit in New York and say is impossible to do, but they're doing it. 
Um, and so there's lots of interesting work going on in Cairo and in Egypt of various kinds of social science projects that are really quite intellectually provocative. Um, so we need to make sure we're aware of that, that there are dissemination mechanisms for the people who are actually doing the work rather than simply write it off and say, you know, we can't do it. It's being done and we could disseminate it more effectively. We could collaborate with people. We could be the sort of helpers of them. They're, you know, designing the research and we can do some of their, you know, bibliography research for them or something like that. I mean, there are a lot of ways, I think, that the fact that it's difficult, that many of the research sites that we would like to be working in are difficult of access to us, whoever we are, means that that, um, you know, sort of power imbalance and exploitation relationship can change somewhat. Um, we don't have some of the capacities that our colleagues have. And if we recognize that and, and, you know, build networks around that, that actually has some pretty interesting potential, in my view. Rebecca? So a number of things, Mark. One, I definitely have seen, and this is something I struggle with on a daily basis, which is access to the region and field work, which impacts my own uh, research uh, as well. Right. But as Lisa said, in the Cairo workshop, for example, we have heard from uh, young researchers who who were able to do their field work in very imaginative and interesting ways and to produce actually knowledge. Uh, so one is actually opening up and listening to people who are conducting research about what they're doing as opposed to like writing off certain places. Two is that even when we had, we, we need to be candid, even when we had access to the region, you know, post the Arab uh, uprisings and in places where we still have access, um, like in Lebanon, for example, what are we doing with this access? And when people I've seen, um, research based on supposedly, you know, um, field research in uh, in Lebanon that's just like horrifying on on so many uh, on so many levels. So I think the the access is definitely a thing. But when we do have access, what do we do with that? Continues to be on the table. Should not just be marginalized, thinking that we don't have access. Again, the, the book that uh, Ali worked on with the stories of Ali Ahbida, with the stories of survivors of the genocide. Yes, it took time. Uh, but again, this is Libya where no one had access and, um, and he was able to produce this. So that's the second thing I would keep in mind. Two, a uh, third thing is that certain methodologies are good for certain things, but we cannot assume that, you know, just as much as we cannot assume that AI will be replacing, you know, us as human researchers, we cannot assume that, you know, randomized experiments and, um, you know, remote surveys would actually uh, answer all the questions. We need to take this with a grain of salt. Um, the 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 final thing I think some of the the what we think of as field research that takes into consideration uh, all those limitations have also uh, haven't fully 
exploited the options, right? So let's think of and something that you would be able to talk about uh, more um, using the so social media and the discourses and the narratives. This is something that you worked on before. What I see now is that you find researchers who are not privy to the language. They don't understand the disaggregation of society. They take certain um, data from these platforms. They model it you know, just generate things that tell us, oh, leadership on uh, Twitter. The the importance of the, what is now called, like the traditional training of being, uh, understanding the language and uh, having spent time in the places that you write about, even if you're not doing direct research, but just understanding what this place is about, is that you would be able to read those results differently because you would understand that people who actually are active on Twitter are a particular slice of that population, right? So, or you would be, you would understand that using this particular hashtag has not just like the literal meaning that when you translate, but there is like contextual variables. So there is in my mind, if you're studying uh, a region, for all regions, but particularly a region like the Middle East, where the language is very different and there's a very deep historical uh, evolution there, you will need to spend some time on the skills that now people do not want to invest in, which is, you know, the the language training, understanding, just like even watching the TV or, you know, the, the literature produced uh, uh, from this country. So. I don't know if it's that they don't want to, but or if they're not incentivized to do so uh, or rewarded for it uh, in, in the profession as it is these days. That is exactly why Remina brings in, because again, and this uh, relates to what you said about getting people published. We're not going to sit there and point uh, fingers. That's such a privileged position, right? You shouldn't be doing this. You should. Be. People have, I mean, that's their livelihoods. Um, and this is why we bring in the different parties. We bring in the publishers so that they are aware of those parameters that they're setting. We bring in, you know, scholars who are running programs in Ivy Leagues to understand how their training can be changed or, uh, you know, have bearing on producing proper research. That's all extremely yeah. interesting. Well, Lisa, go ahead. You can have- No, I was just going to say one little last thing of you know, the sort of levels at which we're trying to do this. Some of it is obviously this very big picture kind of thing, but apropos where we have, where there is access for research continues to be to some extent possible, Lebanon. A lot of what's being published on the basis of that research in journals has is being passed through peer reviewers who know nothing about Lebanon. So unless we talk to the journals about enhancing their peer pools, that will continue to happen. So that it's that kind of thing. It's sometimes it's quite mm -hmm. technical and I agree about tokenism and so forth and so on, but there's also a sort of sensitize the journals to what they're doing, which I think many of them are just, they're not paying attention. 
once they pay attention, these are intelligent people who are committed to the development of their disciplines. Um, but if you don't have any people in your peer pool that know anything about the region, you're clearly going to have less quality publications. Um, and that becomes a sort of self-reinforcing dynamic. So, you know, again, one of the satisfactions here is the extent to which we can go from these sort of technical interventions to much broader implications of them. And again, I want to perhaps end with the emphasis that one of the most wonderful things about the project is we now have a community of, you know, well over 100 people that we've had some touch point with. And these are, you know, PhD students who are doing work in Yemen. There are you know, senior scholars who are, you know, have worked in a variety of places, so forth and so on, in between all sorts of, and that's been fruitful for everyone. I think we've learned a lot from the junior scholars. I think the junior scholars have been usefully engaged by the knowledge that senior scholars worry about these things too. Um, all in all, I think that's been one of the most um, satisfying elements of the project as a whole. Well, these are obviously important conversations that are going to continue. And uh, it's great that Ramina is providing a, a central home for many of them to come together. Uh, thank uh, Rabab Mahdi and Lisa Anderson for joining us on the Middle East Political Science Podcast. <laughs> This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Thanks to Toby Matheson, Lisa Anderson, and Rababa Mehdi for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. La, la, la.